right, we ready for the word? All right, well, let's dive in. So if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know that we've been on the Here series, and, um, and Tim started with uh, Here We Baptize, then he got into Here We Worship, Here We Pray, Here We Serve, and oh boy, if you weren't here last week, Here We Upset the World was off the charts. I'm an, I need to listen to that one again, because we're going to be hearing more of that, I'm sure. But uh, as Christians, especially here at Embassy City, um, we will upset the world. And so we'll continue in that vein tonight. But before we dive in, I just wanted to give you kind of a little bit of context. And so I was saved in March of 95, born and raised in Los Angeles. Uh, go Dodgers. I hope they win. Um, but uh, up until that point, like I'm sure like many people here, I was not raised in the church. I was raised Catholic. And, um, and I was really taught, even as a young boy, that it didn't matter how you lived your life. God understood it was all good in a bag of chips and a t-shirt. And, um, and I quickly found out that life started to grind, at, grind away at me. And so without getting into too much of the details, by the time I got to the point where I was really ready to hear the word of God and really be introduced to what a personal relationship with Christ is, um, it took some stuff for me to be ready. And God really used my finances and my career path. Um, I had a girlfriend too, but it was really the circumstances around me um, trying to be something, if you will, in the world's eyes and trying to be a provider. At the time, I didn't have a wife, but, but being a provider was, was in me and it's in a lot of men. And so we, we, we really thrive in that area. And so when I look back at that, um, even after giving my life to the Lord for two years, almost two years, um, I still had a foot in one world and a foot in the other. I, it was really hard for me to break free from some people, some habits, some substances, some things, some activities that I went to in the world to numb the pain that I was in, but I didn't know why I was in so much pain. And so that's a little bit of background, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that this evening. Um, and so what happened was, even in that year and a half or two-year process, I, I, the Lord just allowed life to continue grind me down to where finally I said, uncle, I, I can't do this anymore. And so in January of 1997, I said, all right, Lord, I'm going to give you a full year. I'm going to walk away from the, from the jokers in my life. I'm going to walk away from the substances. I'm going to walk away from all that. And if after a year from now, my life's not any better, I have no idea what I'm going to do. And so it wasn't an ultimatum as much as it was a cry. I was crying out for his help. I didn't know how to do it myself, and so I submitted it over to him. And so when I did that, that year in 1997, I saw within months, things started changing. And I saw him moving in my life. And uh, one of the things that happened was a pastor at the church I was at, he, we were in a service one day, and he just kind of slid this little piece of paper over to me, and he said, this is for you. And I opened it up, and all it said was 1 Samuel 2.35. And so I flipped open my Bible. I said, oh, what is that? What is that? And so I read it. It said, then I will raise up a faithful priest who will serve me and do what I desire. I will establish his family and they will be priest to my anointed kings forever. At the time, I didn't know what that meant. And it took almost 20 years for me to really realize what that meant. And so when, when I hear that, it wasn't just a scripture he gave me. It was a prophetic word over my life. And so what I know now is that prophetic words strengthen our faith, but it's the literal word of God that tests our character. And so from that time on, I've been on a 20-year journey of being tested in my character. 
and one of the things that, that I saw happen in my life, and we're going to see a little bit about Peter, is that I allowed that word to go away. I didn't hold on to that word, and I got distracted. And so when we fail to hold on to the word that God has for us over our lives, um, we, we risk the, the potential of being distracted, but I think more importantly, we risk the, I guess the... Uh, we, run into, we basically get to a place where we can actually create a long-distance relationship with God. And that is a very tough place to be. And so tonight, we're going to talk about, we're going to look at Peter, how he started really strong. He lost some focus, but through losing that focus, he was restored, and wow, was he restored. Look what God did, did with him in Acts after the ascension and after, the, after, after Pentecost. It's amazing. But I really want to go look before that because we tend to look at how great of an apostle he was, but we sometimes tend to, to, to not focus on some of those faults. And so um, if we can turn to Mark chapter 14, we'll start there as kind of the context of Peter's life. And we're going to look at uh, verse 53 and verse 54. Mark 14, 53 and 54. They took Jesus to the high priest's home where the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of the religious law had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance, underline that, and went right into the high priest's courtyard. There he sat with the guards, warming himself by the fire. So one of the things that I've found in my life is that when we allow distance to get between us and the Lord, we tend to warm ourselves in the world. So tonight, we're going to talk about here. All right, let's do it. Tim's not here, but let's do it. Index finger up. Here we follow. Again, here we follow. One last time. Here we follow. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you for showing us that there's a danger when we allow distance to form in our relationships, especially with you. Thank you that here we follow you closely. Amen. All right, so I don't know about you, but I have definitely noticed that in our world today, there is a, um, an acceptance of quitting and giving up, whether it's in a job, whether it's in ministry, whether it's in marriage. Um, you know, I've got two young kids, so this is kind of, you know, top of mind is, you know, they give ribbons now. If there's 20 kids in the race, they all get a ribbon. When I was growing up, if you didn't get first, second, or third, you had to go try harder to get first, second, and third the next week. And I think that's fine to some degree, but when we really look at, at what it can do to kids and stunt their growth and, 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 and create a, a storyline, if you will, or a narrative that they don't have to work hard to earn something, then we have a generation that's not really going to work hard to achieve anything. And so when I look at that, and I see that, that there's even some youth leagues that don't even want to keep score anymore because they think it'll hurt the losing team's feelings. And my nine-year-old is not, he played, he played t-ball three years ago. This is three years ago. He's nine. He still remembers playing t-ball. And he says, Daddy, remember that time when I was playing t-ball and that team beat us 29 to 1? I'm like, yeah, I sure do. How'd that feel? I didn't like it. I'm like, I know you didn't. But he still remembers it three years later. It's still speaking to him. And so I always tell him, well, if you don't want to get beat 29 to 1 again, you just need to work harder and listen to your coaches and submit to the process. 
And so when I look around and I see that we're living in a culture that promotes total independence from oppression of any kind, it makes it hard for us to really operate in that type of environment. And so if we don't agree with our parents, our bosses, our pastors, our government, our first responders, if we don't agree with them and they're not doing exactly what we want to do, then we just move on, we quit, and we find someone that will agree with us. And this is what I see more and more. And so, when I, you know, again, when I was growing up, when the, when the going gets tough, the tough get going meant when the going gets tough, you just roll up your sleeves and get tougher and fight through. Today, it means when it gets tough, let's just move on and do something else and try to find somewhere where I, get, where I can fit in. And so one of the things that I look at is changing jobs when it, when it gets tough, divorce, even church hoppings become a thing. I don't like what that guy said. That was, he challenged me too much. Or I, I, you know, I wanted to start a ministry and they wouldn't let me. And we're 13 months young. And, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and, and I, need, I need help. I, the church should come and bail me out. Well, no, the church is here to support you. We're here to, to, to help people who are really in need. But we're not here to become welfare for you. And frankly, God gives us finances to steward so that we can pour into people, train them up so that they can go out and do what they're great at. Um, not necessarily to just pay the bills from month to month. And so when I look at it, it giving up too soon, what it, what it reminds me of is it reminds me of a story I heard about, um, about the, the crops up in Napa Valley up in Northern California is where most of the wine, well, not most, but a lot of the wine in the country and in the world is made up in Napa Valley. And, uh, and I was up there one time for a race and I was talking to one of the growers and, and I was just asking about the crops and I was curious and he, and I said, so uh, I said, how's the crop this year? He goes, oh man, he goes, it's been a tough year. The weather's been bad. There's been bugs trying to attack the, the grapes. And, and we even had kind of this fungus or something that gets on the vines that, that's trying to kill it. So we've been working really hard. And I said, oh, wow. I said, so is that going to mess, mess the wine up? He goes, actually, no. He said, we find that crops that have to struggle the hardest produce the best wine. And I said, really? I said, what about the, the, you know, the, the, the crops that don't struggle? He goes, oh, he goes, he's all funny you ask. He's all, they actually look like they're good. They look plump. They look ripe. They look like they're going to produce the best wine ever. He goes, but for some reason, we can't explain it. He said, those crops really don't produce great wine. It's the ones that really struggle. And I couldn't help think about my marriage and other marriages or jobs that you've hung out and stuck in there or positions that you stuck it out in and, and seeing God do a work. I know one time I had a job where I felt like the boss was just on me and he was, he was holding me accountable. He was, he was telling me if I'm not working on weekends, I'm not committed. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I was newly married. And so I would come home and tell Liesl about it. And she would be like, he's right. You better submit to him. He's your boss. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. I'm trying to get some, get some love here. But really, the, I, I was, <laughs> I, you know, I'm like, aren't you on my side? <laughs> but the reality was is she was on my side because she was pushing me to submit to my authority to not just quit when it got tough. And let me tell you, it was hard. And I hung in there and it turned out to be one of the best jobs that I ever had. And it got me uh, enough experience in an area that opened up a door in another position that got me like a 30 or 40% raise. And so it was really a struggle, but it was worth it. So what happens is, is when we give up too soon is we really delay the lessons that the struggles are intended to produce in our lives. Amen. So let's turn to Romans chapter five and see what Paul has to say about this. So Romans chapter five, verse three through five. We can rejoice too 
when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. And so if, the, if you were to underline anything in here, I would say underline endurance develops strength of character. Another word for endurance in, in that passage is perseverance. And perseverance means steady persistence in a course of action, a purpose, a state, especially in spite of difficulties, obstacles, or discouragement. And so the, the root word of perseverance actually means patience during not just a trial, but a long trial. And so sometimes we go through trials that are extended. And again, it could be a job, it could be a marriage, it could be your kids. It could be a lot of things. And so when we're in those long trials, if we dig a little deeper to the meaning of, of perseverance, there's actually a Greek word that means to stay behind. And that really popped out to me when I saw that in my study time was trials in life are places and times that are actually intended to remind us to stay close to and behind the Lord. Because if we don't, then we risk that distance, right? And then we're in trouble. And so when we stay close, what we're really doing is we're saying, Lord, I trust you for my protection, my provision, and my peace. Because the world is going to try to trick us into thinking, like John was just saying earlier, that our security uh, for provision and for peace is going to be something that the world offers, whether it's money or security in other ways. And so I love that, 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 that God has built in as a little nugget into perseverance and endurance the fact that it really means stay behind me. Get behind me, I got you, I got you covered. And so in James chapter one, verses two through, two through four, it says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider an opportunity for great joy. Huh? <laughs> I, I, I've never really felt that way, but let's keep going. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So our endurance actually can grow. So let it grow for when your endurance or perseverance is fully developed you will be perfect, or another word is whole and complete, needing nothing. The only way to be whole and complete is to endure through our troubles. Not to quit, don't give up, and just trust the Lord. So what do you think is the most common tool that God uses to help us develop our ability to endure or persevere? All right, I'll tell you. It's people. It's people. He uses people to create friction so that we cannot, not, so it's not so that we can look at the person and say, hey, what's wrong with them? It's so that we can look at our reaction to them and say, what's wrong with us? That's the key. So he uses people to develop our character. And so the question we really have to ask is, how are we stewarding our relationships with people? And that sometimes isn't an answer that we want to we wanna give. Because if you look at the beginning, we were made to be relational. We're made to be in a relationship. So obviously, we all know Genesis 2, then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper just right for him. And then in verse 25, it says, now the man and his wife, this is obviously after Eve was, was, was formed, were both naked, but they felt no shame. So the very first relationship, not just between a man and a woman, but between people, was transparent, trusting, and honest. There was no shame. And so when we look at the definition of shame, it means feelings associated with but not limited to failure, public exposure, disgrace, embarrassment, social rejection, ridicule, and dishonor. 
I don't know about you, but I felt that a lot of times in my life when I'm dealing with people. And I know that a lot of times my own wife and my own kids will bring stuff out of me to feel that way to where I'm afraid sometimes to even, I mean, I'm, look, I still struggle with having our financial meetings. <laughs> like, where are we at with our budget? And where, you know, what do we need to budget for? And what do we need to plan for? And for some reason, there's this thing in me that I'm asking God to reveal so that he can heal it of why can't I just talk openly about what I've spent money on? And so shame is a real thing, and not just in our marriages, but in our workplace and with our friends and with our family. And so all relationships will be tested in some way. A relationship that's never tested isn't a real relationship. At Gateway Conference last week, Jimmy Evans did a session, and he talked about it, and I love what he said. He said, most people today would rather have a digital relationship than a real relationship. And if someone wants to have a relationship based on likes and based on shares and based on retweets and based on loves on Instagram, that's not a real relationship. And so when we really look at the way we're going in terms of how we relate to people, it makes it very difficult when we can't be transparent and we can't be real and we hide behind a device or a computer. So Peter... This is where we kind of get into the meat. So Peter had a fast rise. So let's turn to Luke chapter 5 real quick, and then we'll get moving along here. So that was, that was just the introduction. Because Peter, I can relate to Peter quite a bit. There's a lot of Peter's flaws that I see in me. And so this is less of a message and more of a testimony or a confession for me. This is what I've gone through for the last three years. Um, so, little caveat. So Luke chapter five, verses one through 11. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go out where it's deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Okay, now remember, this is Simon Peter, right? This is Simon. This is before he was saved. This is before he was a disciple. He's on the job. He just got done all night catching nothing. They had already washed their nets. And now here comes this Jewish teacher that says, hey, why don't you go and cast, go a little deeper and cast your nets out again? And now it's daytime. And I could only imagine Peter's probably going, okay, well, I've tried everything myself. And we don't know. This could have been going on for more than one night, right? So we don't know. So at this point, I look back at my life and how God allowed life to grind me down to where when he came in and he actually presented a message to me, I was open. He says, uh, he calls him master, which is interesting. Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing, but if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter, interesting now that they're calling him Simon Peter, something happened in his heart. He went from Simon of just a couple sentences ago to now he's Simon Peter. He now, he's, now the rock is in his name. When he realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm too much of a sinner to be around you. 
for he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partner James, John, and the sons of Zebedee were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishers of people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. And so when I read that, I look at Peter. It was a miracle based on a situation that spoke to his heart. There was something going on in Peter's heart in that moment. And so when you look at his walk over the next three and a half years, you see some great things, but you also see a lot of flaws coming out. Because I think sometimes what the enemy does is he tricks us into thinking that when we get saved, that all of our past habits, all of our past insecurities, all of our past issues, all of our past heart hurts, heart wounds are just healed all of a sudden. When the reality is, is that our spirit is saved, but our soul can still be bound. And this was what Peter was going through. And so when you look at him, he was impetuous, he was ambitious, he was impulsive, he was a real guy with real issues. He often spoke uh, um, without thinking, and if pushed, boy, could he give you a tongue lashing, as we learn later. Peter tried to keep Jesus from going to the cross, and Jesus in that moment said, get behind me, Satan. Could you imagine after walking with him that long, and all the issues, and all the mistakes that he made, and have, and have your Lord and Savior say, get behind me, Satan, that had to have touched a place in his heart that hurt. So one of the things that I did was, just to make it a little bit more clear, was rather than bouncing around uh, through the four Gospels, I just kind of took bits and pieces and kind of put into it like a little story um, form of, of Peter, just to highlight some areas. And so bear with me, I'm just going to read these few paragraphs and make it a little more clear. Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. So this is right at the end, right before he's going to the cross and, and Jesus is trying to tell them what's going to happen. And he's talking right back to Jesus like this. Even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. They were down with their Lord. Now fast forward. Meanwhile, Simon Peter followed Jesus at a distance. Now this is right after, um, right after he's arrested. This is right after he's arrested. Uh, he followed Jesus at a distance along with another of the disciples who happened to be John. Because John was acquainted with the high priest, he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus but Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then John spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and Peter went right into the high priest's courtyard and sat with the guards and waited to see how it would all end. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made charcoal fire in the middle of the courtyard. They stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood by them, with them by the fire. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter in the firelight, warming himself. She looked at him closely, staring at him, and then finally said, you were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. Then she said to the crowd, this man was one of Jesus's followers, but Peter denied it in front of everyone saying, woman, I don't even know him. I don't know what you're talking about. And he went out into the entryway, but stayed on the fringe of the courtyard. And just then the rooster crowed. Later out by the gate, another servant girl noticed him and began telling others standing around, this man is definitely one of them. He was with Jesus of Nazareth. Then someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. But Peter denied it again, this time with an oath saying, no, I'm not. I promise. I don't even know the man. 
About an hour later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and insisted, you must be one of them because you're a Galilean and we can tell by your accent. Peter then swore firmly, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed a second time. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard, broke down, and wept bitterly. How could someone who walked with Jesus for three and a half years, sat at his feet, broke bread with him, witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, get to a place of denying him publicly? It was a heart issue. It wasn't that he didn't love Jesus. It wasn't that he didn't think he was. He just said earlier that it was, he was the Messiah. And Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't tell you that. The Holy Spirit did. So this was a spirit-filled believer who's publicly denying Christ. And when I look back over my life, in those first two years after giving my life to the Lord was a struggle. The next 11 were kind of like Peter after he started following Jesus. I met my wife. We became ordained ministers. We stayed close to God. By all accounts, we were on a path possibly to ministry or some other place. If I would have held on to the original word that, that God gave me, but then in 2008, we had our two boys. They were really young. I heard a message on kings and priests. And the short of it is, is that you have people who were anointed to be kings to go out and get resources for the kingdom. And then you have priests who were established within the church to do the things of God and do the church. But every king had a priest and every priest had a king. And so when I looked at 2008, what God was doing in my work in nonprofit, and I was raising millions of dollars and doing very well, I all of a sudden thought, I'm a king. I'm anointed to raise money. So I am going to now focus on raising money for the kingdom. So then I ended up getting a job with the Boy Scouts of America, and what this, then now here's the enemy piles on. All of a sudden, within three years, we were raising about $50 million. So now I'm convinced. I'm, I'm a king. And so I started putting a business plan together. I eventually left the Boy Scouts and started my own agency, and I started focusing on business and making money. And it's funny because Tim and I, we've been friends for 17 years. We used to meet. And years ago, he'll tell you, he, he just knew that I was destined for ministry. But during this window of like 2008 to like 2013, when we would meet for our monthly breakfast, I was, I'm convinced, I'm a king, Tim, I'm a king. And he told me years later that, Every time I left those meetings, I just thought I missed it. And I would be like, well, I'm glad you never said anything because what you really allowed God to do was work on my heart and allow me to go through that, that, that process so that I could have endurance and perseverance grow in my heart to the point where I was open to hear from God. And so after all that time of really thinking that I was called to be a king, God ended up messing with the money again. And so in 2014, I was making more money a month than I had ever made in my life by a long shot, but we weren't stewarding it the right way either. And so all of a sudden, I went from making the most money I ever made to, to down to 25% of that within a few months, and then a few months after that, down to $1,000 a month, and then down to zero for about six months, dried up. And I was trying everything. I was like Peter probably out with the fish, you know, net here and net there and call this network and call this guy and call in favors and nothing came through. And it was during that time uh, that the Lord spoke to my heart and said, do I have your attention? 
And I said, yes, sir. And he said, you always were destined for ministry. The difference is, is that you have kingly skills and a kingly anointing, but you're going to do it as a priest in the kingdom. I went, okay, if I'm going to do that, you're going to have to open up the door because I don't have anything on my resume that says church, ministry, nothing. And so again, I went back to my sending out emails and, you know, hey, I, you know, I, I'm destined for ministry, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, sending out resumes and, you know, and the good thing is, is that through all that, God knew my heart. And he ended up taking me back to Mothers Against Drunk Driving as a contractor and had one other client, and he, and he restored the finances, not to the level it was, but way more than I deserved, and was providing. And it was a huge blessing. And so with those kingly gifts, I realized that, yeah, I never had it in my heart to start a church or to be a senior pastor, but I knew I could help a senior pastor with the business stuff and the finances and all of that. And so real quick, we're going to end with this three ways to follow Jesus closely, because this whole message is really nothing more than me confessing that, yeah, for about four or five years, I was following Jesus at a distance the same way Peter was, and it was all because of issues in my heart that I never resolved when I got saved, and so the first one is guard your time, the second one is guard your mind, and the third one is guard your heart, and so when you look at the definition of guard, to keep safe from harm or danger, protect watch over, to keep under close watch in order to prevent escape or misconduct, to keep under control or restraint as a matter of precaution or prudence. And so when I look at the part of that, 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 that definition that says, keep under close watch in order to prevent escape or misconduct, I really find that that really spoke to me during that distance time because I didn't guard my time, I didn't guard my mind, and I didn't guard my heart, and I allowed so many distractions to come into my life. And so point one, guard your time. So from the very beginning, God desired that we make time to rest. In Exodus 16, 23, he says, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow will be a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath day set apart for the Lord. So bake or boil as much as you want today and set aside what is left for tomorrow. I went years without a Sabbath, without taking a rest. It was nonstop. It's business, raising money, providing for my wife, kids, uh, sports, school, running from place to place, traveling 70,000 miles a year uh, from Dallas-Fort Worth, all domestic, nothing international. So you could imagine how many miles it took to, how many flights it took to get to 70,000 miles a year. And then Joshua uh, chapter three, verse nine says, so Joshua told the Israelites, come and listen to what the Lord your God says. Now they were just about to go into the promised land. They were in a frenzy. The adrenaline was pumping. They couldn't wait to get in that promised land. They were ready to take it by force. And Joshua says, come and listen to what the Lord God says. I was so focused on being successful, I rarely took time to stop and listen. I wouldn't even listen to my wife. She would tell me certain things, and, and her advice was, was godly, and it was, and it was in line. But I had so much pride because I was so distracted that I'd, oh, I'll just do it my way. I'm good. And then I'd fail, and I'd have to come back. And the, the thing that I love about her is she never said, I told you so. She never did. But she knew. She knew that God was going to get to my heart at some point. And so, um, so point one, guard your time. Point two is guard your mind. So what we put into our mind will take root. Proverbs 15, 14 says, a wise person is hungry for knowledge while the fool feeds on trash. While the fool feeds on trash? Well, I don't feed on trash unless you call Netflix and news channels and magazines and social media, 
unless you call that trash. But that's what I was feeding my mind on, sports, ESPN, Fox Sports, all of that. And no redeeming value, but it fed the flesh. And I remember a pastor used to tell me, there's only two things that the flesh desires, seek pleasure and avoid pain. And if you can do both at the same time, the flesh is going to have a party. And so I look back over that time and I'm like, wow, I was doing nothing but feeding the flesh. I was not guarding my mind. Romans 12.2 says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and, and perfect. We must change the way we think if we want God, uh, God's will for our lives. And the only way to do that, the only way to renew our minds is by the washing of the word. We have to spend time in the word. And then point three, so point one, guard your time. Point two, guard your mind. Point three, and this is the most important part, not because I say it, but the word actually says it. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else. Guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. And boy, when I look over the course of my life, I can trace every decision I made to the condition of my heart. All the good decisions I made, my heart was in a good place. All the bad decisions I made, my heart was struggling. And so what is our heart? The definition of our heart is the feelings, the will, and the intellect, which is nothing more than our soul. And so we have to guard our soul. 3 John 2 says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. So prosperity and abundance has nothing to do with money. It's the condition of our heart. And if our heart is wounded and we're still holding on to, to, to past offenses, from, even from childhood, we're never going to get to a place of abundance and prospering because he says right here that, that may you prosper in all things and be in health, be in physical health. I remember for, for, for about two years, Lisla, after our second child was born, she would, she would have panic attacks and night terrors and we would have to call the ambulance sometimes. Her heartbeat would get up to 200 beats a minute. And so we, it had to be something physical. So we went to cardiologists. We went to, to brain doctors. We went to endocrinologists. We went everywhere for months. And every single one of them said, there's nothing wrong with you physically. We can't find anything wrong except for the fact that she was having panic attacks and anxiety and her heartbeat was going up to 200 beats a minute sometimes until we decided that we needed to start working on our hearts. And she went to this class that really taught us how to look into our hearts and even go all the way to our childhood and see what childhood wounds could be there. And once she started forgiving and once she started allowing the Holy Spirit to unravel some of those wounds, all of a sudden, the anxiety started to drop away. The night terror started going away. The heartbeats never came back. And she was healed. Her physical health was healed as her soul prospered. And I watched it firsthand. And so how can you tell if your heart or soul is out of balance? Luke 6, says, a tree is identified by its fruit. And I know for years I would use that as a judgment scripture because I would look at people and say, oh, I'm gonna judge them by their fruit. Look, they're, you know, whatever. I mean, you can fill in the blank, right? But the reality is, is that I really believe that it's saying that we need to look at our fruit because when you look at the different types of, of uh of fruits that, could, that actually could, could point back to that we have a really, we have a heart condition. There's six of them that a spirit-filled psychologist um, named Dominic Herbst came up with. 
And, he's, and these, are, these are six, these are, these are general. There's a lot of little branches and a lot of little leaves that can come off of these. But he's, he, he said, these six are fruit that if you see in your life, they're pointing to a heart condition. Depression, deception, violence and assault, controlling behavior, frozen emotions, and shame and rage. Now, the problem is, most of the time we'll see those, and maybe the most popular because is maybe depression, is that we'll think that that's a root when that's really a fruit. And so, look, I'm not against medication, but, not, but I am against medication as a cure, not as a treatment. It's great to treat till you can get to a place of cure, but we can't be on medication our whole life dealing with depression, anti-depression medication, thinking that's the cure. That's a fruit. We're de- you keep cutting the fruit off and you feel better, and then it comes back. Well, when, what he did is he went a step further and said, well, here's some roots to this fruit. If you're struggling with depression, there's some rejection. There's a, reje- a root of rejection somewhere in your life early on. If deception's your thing, there was some verbal berating as a root back as a child. If it's violence and assault, you're likely to have, have, have encountered some physical abuse. If it's controlling behavior, if you have to control everything to feel safe, there was some abandonment issues. If you have frozen emotions and you can't connect with anyone, it's a root of detachment, which makes you feel unloved. And the last one is if you have shame and rage that comes up out of nowhere, a lot of times that's associated with sexual abuse. Every heart has been broken, damaged, and wounded at some point in our lives. The child's heart can't tell the difference between intentional and unintentional wounds. They just can't. And the good news is, is that we can all be healed and prosper in every one of our relationships, but we can't fix what man has broken. We have to submit it to God. Only the Holy Spirit can fix our hearts. So in Matthew 20, 22, uh, chapter 22, verse 36 to 40, Jesus sums up the greatest commandment ever. And this has to do with all relationships. Teacher, which is the most important command in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second, he, these are his words, is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. The bottom line, we have to love God and we have to love people. And to me, that's the problem with our country right now. It's not racism. It's not political divide. It's, not that, it's heart issues. Racism is a fruit of a, of a wounded heart, of an angry heart, of a confused heart. Bigotry, all of that is really rooted in the heart. And so, the diff- so you can tell when God is working on your heart, when you see or, uh, someone post something on social media or someone says something to you that, that is offensive, you can tell if you are, are, are struggling in your heart based on your response. Because if your response is to strike back instead of, oh my gosh, they are wounded. They are a hurting, wounded person. And look how they're reacting to me because of the color of my skin because of my accent, because of my background, whatever it is, that is a wounded, hurting person that needs Jesus. That's the healthy response. The negative response, and I, trust me, I'm, <laughs> the negative response shows nothing more that there's, a, that there's a heart condition. And so when our hearts are filled with torment from those who've betrayed us, our lives are lonely and miserable. There can be no abundance in a tormented heart. And you, you, can't, you can't help but be tormented if you have unforgiveness in your heart toward your offenders. 
and toward other people and ultimately toward God. Because if he was a loving God, why would he have let that happen to me? And that's hard for a Christian to admit. And I had to admit that just a few years ago. I was pissed off at God. Why would he allow me to, 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 to make the decisions I made if he was a loving God? And he's gone, look, it was free will. If I made you, that's not really called love. You have to choose to fight for your healing. I can't make you. So Matthew, 6, 15, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Said another way, if you refuse to forgive others who have sinned against you, your Father will not forgive your sins of unforgiveness toward those he loves. This isn't a salvation issue. This is a heart issue. He's teaching us in that, in that thing, in that message right there in that scripture that unforgiveness is really the, the key to unlocking a lot of the healing that we need in our lives. And so Matthew chapter seven, verse one through three, um, I'm just gonna jump to the, to the, verse, to the third verse because I didn't understand the scripture until recently. Uh, and why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? And right before that, he's talking about do not judge. I used to think that that was about the amount of issues Right, that I used to think that, well, I have a log, I must have way more issues in my life than the other people because they only have specs. And so I allowed the enemy to trick me into thinking that there's no hope for me. I, I can't work on the log in my eye. I mean, everyone else is much better than I am. And the reality is, is that has nothing to do with that scripture. What he's really talking about is the amount of time you spend focusing on it. And if I spend, how much time does it take to focus on a speck, a piece of dust? I mean, my wife would probably argue that she has to dust a lot in our house because we have kids and all that. But to deal with it is fairly simple. You just dust, right? You just kind of knock it away. But to deal with a log and have to, if anyone's chopped down a tree or been to a log uh, lumber yard, that's heavy work. You have to take your time. You have to focus. You have to, be, you have to be mindful of safety issues. What God is saying is stop focusing all your time. Just spend a little bit of time on, on, on focusing on other people Put the majority of your time on you. That's what that scripture is saying. So we, so the, and the beauty of it is, is that when we all read it separately, we all have a log. <laughs> so I used to think everyone had specs, but then I went, oh wait, everyone else reads that on their own too. So they have logs too. So I'm good. We just have one big lumber yard that we're having to deal with. <laughs> so, um, so again, it's not, it, it, it's, we can be saved, yet still be walking in the sin of unforgiveness toward others for years, including unforgiveness toward God. And I believe the flaws that we saw in Peter were rooted in the wounds of his heart. And so Peter eventually got to a place of restoration. So remember, in Luke 5, he was instructed to change the way he was doing his job, and a miracle took place that led to his salvation. Let's turn to John 21 real quick and see the, see the last part of that story. John 21. And this is verses one through seven. So remember, this is, this is after Jesus' death. So remember, Peter was never heard of again after that courtyard. He wasn't at the crucifixion and he holed up in, in, in the room, maybe the upper room, wherever he was at, all the way up until the time that Mary and the other ladies came running and Jesus is alive. No, 
Peter was nowhere to be found until, until he got to that point. And so this is afterwards that Jesus has risen. So Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. Now Jesus is risen. He's already shown himself to them, yet he's still going fishing. He's going back to the familiar. At dawn, uh, I'm, going fi- I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So his guy said, yeah, if Peter's going, I'm going. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing that night again. Three and a half years later, same result. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, well, throw your net on the right hand of the boat and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul it in, because, uh, in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved, John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that, it was the Lord. He put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. He had a little bit of healing in his heart take place right there. But if you, if you drop down to 15 to 17, Jesus could have left it at that. Now, here's the beauty in this. God used the same miracle to save Peter to restore him. That was unbelievable when I saw that. I had never seen that till recently. And so if he would have stopped it there and didn't get to these next few words, then, then Peter would have ran, uh, he would have risked thinking that salvation and restoration is in the miracle and not in the Savior. And so what he said here was, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Here's where you know that Peter's heart was still, still struggling. Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. He had to get to his heart for Peter to see that he was hurt, for Peter to realize that he was wounded. I love that Jesus did this because what he was showing Peter was, in order for you to truly get to a place where you can feed your own family, you can provide for your own wife, your own kids, you have to address your own heart. And Peter's heart was clearly wounded. And so when I look at that, it just speaks to me because that's where I was at. For almost five years, I allowed alcohol back in. I allowed certain types of movies back in. I allowed habits and old things to come back into my life that I knew weren't, I wasn't wired for that. But it was so much pain that I needed to numb. I just allowed it. And, and chalked it up as, well, God will understand. I defaulted back to that old Catholic way of thinking that I was raised with. And Jesus said, no, I, you need to get to the root of this. You need to get to your heart. And so, in conclusion, I promise, turn to Isaiah 41, <laughs> verses 8 through 10, and this will sum it all up. And I love, love, love this. I love this. Isaiah 41, I hope I'm not boring anyone, 41, 8, 9, and 10, 
But as for you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, my chosen one, descended from Abraham, my friend, I've called you back from the ends of the earth, saying, you are my servant, for I have chosen you and will not throw you away. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. If you look at that, he calls Israel, he calls him by name Israel, which represents the church, his servant. But the thing I love is that he included the name of Jacob in that sentence. He could have just called him Israel, his restored name. But he put in Jacob, which was the trickster, the, the jokester, his flawed man. And so by putting him in there, that flawed individual, he's the one that God easily could have thrown away. And the thing I love about that is when I look back over my time following at a distance, God could have easily thrown me away, but he chose not to. And so even when we fall back and follow at a distance, he'll call us back from the ends of the earth. We are chosen. We will not be thrown away. Guard your time, guard your mind, and above all, guard your heart, and any distance between you and Jesus can be brought close again. Bow your heads.